And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Kerry has been a major figure in American history uh, for decades, first as a young Navy lieutenant who served in Vietnam and poignantly asked the nation, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Then as a a United States senator leading on issues like climate change as early as the 1980s, uh, as a nominee of his party, who very nearly became president of the United States in 2004, and most recently as Secretary of State, and the man who took the lead on negotiating the Iran nuclear agreement, who was at the center of the Paris uh, Climate Change Agreement, and who has been working, trying to find a solution to this vexing and horrific uh, war in Syria. Secretary Kerry came by the Institute of Politics uh, the other day to speak to our students uh, and to sit down with us for a discussion of his career uh, and where we are in the world today. Secretary Kerry, welcome. I, uh, we're, we're 80-some days from the, uh, as we sit here today at the University of Chicago, we're 80-some days from the end of this administration. Seems like a good time to kind of look back a little bit at your, at your life and your career. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, I'm so intrigued by the fact that uh, your dad was in the Foreign Service. And I, I was, uh, what influence did that have on you? And what influence did it have on you that you spent time overseas uh, as a kid? How did it shape who you are? Well, I think, I think David, that the uh, greater shaping came from the fact that I lived overseas rather than the fact my dad was in the service. He spent about 10 years in the in the Foreign Service. And it had some impact because um, I thought it was a good job. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I liked what he did. But I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do at all. I thought of being a journalist. I, I'm a pretty good observer of the world around me, and I liked sort of chronicling it a lot, uh, which I've done at various times. Uh, I thought of... Uh, um, teaching him. I thought of a number of different things. I think the activism of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and that period <clears throat> kind of pushed me in a way in, in that direction, though I'd been involved in undergraduate political stuff at college and I was interested in it, but I was not convinced I'd be a candidate. You, uh, you, you had what would be described as a, a kind of privileged life. You were at Yale, uh, and you enlisted, uh, and uh, you went to Vietnam famously. Why did you do that? What what caused you to? Uh, well, very simply, I really believed uh, that those of us who were lucky enough to go to Yale or go to other, you know, have a comfortable enough life owed our country something, and that was the ethic of the times. Uh, you know, President Kennedy uh, summoned us to duty you know, bear any burden, pay any price. And I think uh, it was part of my dad's. I mean, that is a dad influence. My dad was in the Army Air Corps, and that generation served. And I had grown up with a great awareness of, of the war because we had family ties in Europe where my grandfather, who was American, but had been in business uh, at the outbreak of the war. And some of the family was trapped over there, and they had a home over there. Uh, which the Germans took over and used as a headquarters and then burned and bombed when they left at the end. And my grandfather rebuilt it after the war. So I grew up, you know, we found a mine in the middle of the driveway of that house. There were German bunkers outside of the house. And I had a real sense of um, the values that you need to protect by serving your country. So I thought it was important. But it wasn't... And by the way, the way, we by may, the way it, when yeah. I signed up, David... Lyndon Johnson had just asked for the 5,000 troops, and the Gulf of Tonkin had allegedly happened, and the first draft guard was not burned for another two years. So the swirl of the anti-war movement really didn't grow up uh, and, and come out in full bloom for a couple of years. Did you, what you, 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 at the end of your service, you became a national figure uh, with your very powerful critique 
of the war at the beginning of it uh, when you enlisted did you were you uh, convinced of the 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 rightness of the no cause? i wasn 't convinced of the rightness in fact, I had an ambivalence, but I did not have any sense of the moral uh, rationale for being really opposed to this or that it was a wrong decision that it wasn 't going to work i didn't i didn 't you know hadn 't worked that through. Uh, I remember uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, William Bundy sitting on our floor in our room at college because he was visiting the college at that time, and and we were grilling him, and he was talking about the value of the service and the problem of the communism and the need to, you know, there was a very sterile and uh, fairly stereotyped argument about it at that point in time. And it wasn't until my senior year that in the graduation speech I gave at Yale, I gave the speech, the oration, mm-hmm. whatever they call it, on class day. And at that, I, I did ask questions about the overall policemen of the world, policy, America, what are we... But I didn't... I hadn't landed uh, in a place where I had any moral dilemma at that point in time about being in uniform or going. How uh, how long were you over there before you began to have Very, those very questions? quickly. Really, really fast. And that's where the sense that I said earlier in, 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 when you asked me the first question about the influence of living overseas. That's what I felt. I, I, I knew what it was like to be in another country. I knew sort of how to get at what people are thinking, ask the right questions, and dig in a little bit. And very quickly, there were impressions I had of our presence, of our domination, of our of the way the Vietnamese were treated, of how people talked about them, of what was... Um, of the day-to-day missions of what we were doing. And I just found very quickly that uh, I concluded this isn't going to work. You know, this is wrong. This is crazy. I really felt that, a very deep personal kind of feel of the country. And yet you carried out your orders and with great heroism. You uh, well, I you, you, you know, you, 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 I, you, I signed up to serve, and I, I did uh, my service, even as I was learning each day about the challenges of the war itself. When did you? Um, when did you? Well, before I get to that, I should ask you, what did you learn there that you carry with you now <clears throat> in your role as a ask a lot of questions diplomat? Ask a lot of questions. Try to see the place. Wherever the conflict is or the crisis or the policy choice is emerging, make sure you really analyze it from the point of view of that country and its history and their people and the aspirations of those people, not just the American lens and what do we think of this and how do we see it. And too often we have a, we have a, a, a capacity actually to think we're analyzing something but not really be analyzing it properly because it's entirely within a U.S. lens and matrix. And, and so we miss things. We have historically. Yeah, and our campaign— Iraq is our, another example of that. I our mean, campaigns Iraq, probably don't help in that regard. No, campaigns really don't help in that regard. They push you into corners, and they are very uh, <laughs> sterile when it comes to actual policy and realities and how you bring them in. And, of course, you know, when you have— uh, the capacity of a Karl Rove just to utter the words, well, somebody may look French or you this or that, you can, you, you... Reference to the 2004 campaign. Yeah. You close out the ability to have an intelligent conversation about some issue. You, uh, you came back and you uh, gave your testimony and you ran for Congress. You lost that race for Congress. You went to law school. You became a prosecutor and you were a prosecutor for some time. Uh, I, was, I was as a student and as a yeah, about five years, four years. And and like how what 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 did that teach you? That experience, which is vastly different than. Um, well, I loved it. I actually I loved being. A, it was a great job being a prosecutor as a young lawyer. You have uh, this enormous responsibility for a case. Uh, I loved going into court. I loved the argument. I loved setting it up and framing it. Uh, I didn't love preparing your witnesses. It's tedious and long. And, uh, you know, that's when I decided I don't want to go do this for the rest of my life. Uh, but it was a great, great experience. And 
and we were delivering justice. I mean, we had an old uh, county office that I had come into, and and I and again I sort of looked at this office and I saw the challenges of the office. I mean, we had something like twelve, fourteen thousand backlogged cases. And I would hear from people who come and say, well, what, when's my case going to go forward? And you look back, it's three or four years old, and you couldn't find any witnesses. I mean, it was justice delayed is justice denied, and this was a prime example of it. So I became involved with some of the other uh, younger prosecutors in the office and really leading the charge to reform it, to change it. And we, we went after... LEAA money, Law Enforcement Assistance Administration money. We brought in more money than any office in the country. We created a priority prosecution unit, a rape counseling unit, one of the first victim witness assistance programs in the country. Modeling a lot of this, I will tell you, frankly, was uh, was uh, Henry Morgenthau, mm-hmm. the, the the New York, uh, New York great yeah. famous district attorney. And Bob, Bob Morgenthau. Henry, Bob Morgenthau, yeah. yeah. Sorry, not Henry. Henry was Treasury way back when. <laughs> His son. Uh, Bob Morgan, though, yeah. yeah. And he was uh, incredible, and he'd been doing it for years, and he set the template for what this reform was like. So um, I loved the job. I was made first assistant district attorney. It was a period of time where the district attorney was quite ill, and I was basically you know, running the office during that time, and you, it was you know, fun. We've got these big debates today uh, about the criminal justice system, and you talk about justice delayed as justice denied, but that's true for both the victims and the accused. Absolutely. Um, what what in, what insights did you gain from that period that you that that come back to you now as you see these debates about? Well, many, many. One is we have to adequately fund the systems because without the resources, the system doesn't have a prayer of delivering what you want. If you want justice in America, you have to have, you know. Qualified prosecutors, qualified defense attorneys in the public prosecuting program, because usually that's where they're going to come from, unless people are well healed and can can afford it. Uh, you need good judges. Uh, you need a system that has the uh, uh, electronic digital capacity in today's world to process cases, move, have enough courtrooms that you can go try your cases. Uh, it, it, it's resource based. Number one. Number two. Uh, we need a lot more training in the system with respect to the management of cases, uh, the uh, police themselves, uh, being a witness, police witnesses particularly, how do we manage the system. Police have too much going on. They've got huge demands on them. It's very difficult to find the time to adequately investigate a case sometimes. And the police have to, you know, they file a report, they come in, it's all done very quickly, and then they're racing out to the next crisis. And so, uh, again, resource-based is really You think critical. there's a racial bias in the system? I think, unfortunately, there's, there's more than a racial bias. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's the capacity for a bias in various levels of the system, some of it racial, some of it uh, just ethnic, some of it... Uh, uh, sloppiness. I mean, some of it just, uh, it happens. I got a guy out of jail. Uh, my law partner and I spent a lot of time on this. Uh, uh, if I recall, it was pretty pro bono, but we got a fellow out of jail who had served 15 years for murder he never committed. And we had to go get the priest who had a, had a, had, had a, uh, penance uh, confession to him, released from his vows because uh, the priest had died and and the other witness had died. So there was a reason to get it out because we knew that that confession uh, said that, that uh, he was innocent and because the other guy had confessed to him and mm-hmm. we knew that this had happened. To the priest. To the priest. So we needed to get the priest released from that vow, which happened, and we also needed to get the lawyer released from an attorney-client privilege because, again, his client had died. Therefore, could we get it released because he knew the person was innocent? We got it done. There are countless cases around the country. That's not alone. Right. Every year you read about somebody released who, after 15 years, 20 years, was innocent because DNA finally came by and proved that they're innocent. So 
Managing that system more effectively, David, is a critical component of delivering justice. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting on the south side of Chicago, and obviously these issues are very, very uh, powerful issues here because of the interaction of people with the criminal justice uh, system. You went on. I'm going to skip your lieutenant governor service because it was relatively brief. uh, And you went on to the United States Senate. Uh, You won in 1984. Um, Tell me what the Senate was like then uh, as compared to today. It was in its last years. I didn't know the last years, but it was the old Senate. It was a Senate. What do you mean by that? Well, it was a Senate. If you read the first 300 pages of Robert Caro's book, yeah. it's a brilliant, brilliant. Yes, yeah. It's the best. Wonderful book. The best summary. Master of the, of the Senate. Of the, yeah. Master of the Senate. It's brilliant uh, lay down on how the Senate works and what the rules and what the unwritten rules are and all of the customs and traditions. And it worked. I mean, you could, you know, in that Senate, I could go over to Teddy Kennedy's house in the evening, which I did and have dinner with John Warner and Orrin Hatch and, you know, this group of senators, Bob Packwood, whatever, who were working together. They were Republicans. We were Democrats, obviously. And we'd get things done. You'd sit there talking and laughing and having a good time, and there was none of this anxiety and and polarization and, wow, you're going to be punished because you're talking to this guy. Or if you get in the train now and ride with the guy, you could have a, you know, and I, you know, a photo of you were taken and tweeted out in in moments. Create a firestorm. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So I watched that evolution, and it began, frankly, with the Gingrich Revolution in the House. That was the beginning of the stirrings of a change in the Senate. Then you had a lot of guys come over from the House to the Senate. They brought the House with them, so that began to change the Senate. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, you began with a more total breakdown. And, and and there was blame on both sides for that total breakdown. I mean, it was not a one-way street. You must maintain relationships with some of the senators you served with on the other side of the aisle. Do you keep in touch with them? Yeah, I do. And they're frustrated, deeply frustrated. They live in a in a in a caucus that is a very complicated caucus where there are intense pressures and um Certain senators have come in with a new set of rules and don't hesitate to publicly criticize their own caucus or people within it and to attack them, to say they're going to go out and raise money and run a primary against them. So you're living with this internal uh, uh, friction that is uh, a breeder of chaos in some cases. And there's a lot of... uh Impetus behind that, it, there's uh, the advent of social media, some of the cable, uh, ideologically oriented cable, yeah. money, uh, vast amounts of money. Well, those are the other changes that came about. I mean, I, I came to the Senate as a passionate advocate of campaign finance reform. And in fact, it may have been one of the reasons contributing to, to my loss in 2004 when I ran for president, because I felt so strongly that I had been speaking out consistently for campaign finance reform, that for me to go outside of the system, which some people are arguing I should, uh, would have been a, you know, a, a difficult, very, very hard We choice. should explain that because what happened was you, you, there's a period between the primary and the general. If you're I had a one-month the- period where I was not – our the, the, the Democratic convention was set up in 2004 to take place at the end of July. The whole month of August – I was restrained from spending money under campaign finance because I had a limited pot for the whole campaign. And if I'd spent it then, I might not have had money in October when I needed it. George Bush, however, had a uh, convention at the end of August. So he was not under campaign finance reform until that period of time. Mm -hmm. And so we suffered an enormous amount of attacks during that. That was when the Swift Boat uh, campaign was held. That was sort of a forerunner of, of, of... a lot of what was to follow. A lot of what. Tell me what you felt at the time when uh, you started seeing these ads questioning your, your. Uh, well, your I thought we'd answered it. I mean, I, you know, my 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 records were released to the public. My Navy records were put out to the public. The the, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, 
Uh, I mean, countless papers across the country carried the stories with facts. Uh, all my crew, all the members of my crew who were involved in those actions spoke up for those actions and said exactly what happened and so forth. But when you put a huge amount of money behind a lie and newspapers don't answer the lie, so it didn't matter that that happened, and unfortunately, we were not in a position to spend the kind of money necessary to answer it. The question is whether if uh, you, you know we're in a campaign now, and I'm not going to draw you into discussion of this campaign in part because we have um, your aides sitting in the room who will kill me if I do. Well, you won't uh, get anything out of me either. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, well, that's another reason. Another uh, reason. But but on the uh, but. Yeah. But newspapers, you, we see a campaign now where the, the people are fact-checking to the fairly well, and it doesn't seem to influence views. We've got a hardened set of views uh, that don't seem well, to be Well, that's the polarization that, regrettably, you're more familiar with than anybody. Over the last 15, 20 years, our politics has become more and more polarized. And regrettably, um, there are voices speaking out in our country that play to that, that that encourage it in certain ways. And it's a, it's really a shame because we have big choices to make in our country, critical to people's happiness and, and prosperity and safety, all of which are not at the center of, of, of the debate. And I think it's regrettable. I have a hard time as secretary, I will tell you, going around the world and people ask constantly about what's happening in America and what's happened to our politics. And it's very hard to uh, have them take you seriously when you say, you know, you really ought to be embracing democracy or you need to have your election open up more. You need to be uh, adhering to your constitution. And they look at you with a sort of bemused you know, somewhat critical, quizzical look of where are you coming from? Because we're not setting in a good. Uh, because a we're not good setting. We're setting a. Our, the example of this campaign is horrendous. I mean, it's scary. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Secretary John Kerry. Back. I just. I want before we leave 2004. I want to rehearse the whole campaign. Uh, but I want to ask two questions. One is, you lost a heartbreakingly close. Campaign. In fact, on the night of the election, there was a sense that you had won that election. Uh, and you had to go out and you had to uh, concede defeat. Um, what were you thinking at that moment? And what did you think your obligations were as a, as a candidate then uh, in the midst of your disappointment? Well, to go out and speak know, to it. It was very hard, obviously, uh, David, because it was so close. It was one state, and we weren't sure how many thousands of votes uh, had been or hadn't been cast, uh, you know, and counted. Probably. In Ohio. In Ohio. Um, but what I decided was that it was important for the country to know who their president was and to be able to move forward. And I made the decision in the afternoon of Wednesday that. It just, uh, I didn't want the country to go through another year 2000. Right. Months. This is just four years after the big recount. Just four years Florida. after the big recount. And I thought it would have been very damaging to the country. Uh, were there people urging you to, to do there something were some, else? Yes, of course there were. And for several weeks afterwards, there was a very intense debate about what happened in the, in the, in the election. And, but I thought I did the right thing. I believe today I did the right thing. It was important to, for our nation to not question that and to move forward. And I thought it was, uh, we just couldn't have the spectacle of uh, having that uncertainty and doubt about the system. And so we move forward. I think a lot of reforms have been put in place to address some of the concerns I had and others had. We're still perfecting that. I mean, we're not, but we've come a long way uh, in making sure that the voting rights of our citizens are protected. And I think we're uh, we're doing better than most countries in the world. Having lost a very close election, are you comfortable with the integrity of our voting system? And also, now you have you're you're also privy to the intelligence, uh, and there are concerns about. Well, there's even greater integrity in the system now, David. I mean, we we have uh, first of all, the system is not online, so you can't invade it from another country and start changing the votes. And people need to be confident about that that the system is not going to have a vote. That's that's affected. What about manipulation uh, on the ground? 
It's possible for some people in any place to engage in nefarious activities, but they usually get called out and they usually get found and they're not usually determinative nowadays because we have had many more checks built into the system, many more, much more redundancy in the voting lists, much more capacity to deal with complaints when they arise. We have a lawyer system that's been put in place that's pretty effective for the bar. Each party does its own, but they're pretty careful about uh, guaranteeing the integrity of that process. And the parties themselves both vouch for it in a way. So at the risk of uh, touching the third rail here, in which case you'll shut down, um, what do you think, as someone who gave that very difficult speech, when you hear a candidate say, I may not... I may not concede. Well, I, I, I can't, David. If I get into that, I'm commenting on the direct issue in this race. I just I don't want to do that. But I think can you signal in some own, way in a non-linear? Well, I think my own. I think the answer to my question previous to the question you asked previously, what I did is my answer. Yeah. Did and and well, I won't pursue it because I don't I don't want to waste time. Uh, yeah. But I, uh, presumably, you feel that's a candidate's responsibility. I think that uh, if you run a fulsome campaign and you have the systems in place that any candidate should have and you do your due diligence, you ought to be in a position to make a decision. When you were in the Senate, and this was an issue in that campaign, you cast a vote uh, in favor of the uh, authorization to move forward in Iraq. In retrospect, you've already spoken to that issue. I'm not asking you whether that vote was a good vote or a bad vote. But was the decision, when you look at where we are today with ISIS, there's a lot of sort of discussion about how did this happen? How, how much did the original act of uh, invading Iraq uh, and toppling the regime there lead to the situation that we have there today? Well, I think it was, I think it very significantly. And it was a major, major uh, um, mistake. I mean, just a, a, a colossal, I think, mistake. And when you say I voted for it, let me, let me be clear. <laughs> um, I thought you could vote in a way that kept faith with what you were being told by an administration was their policy. And if you read my speech, which I ask, in, you know, I ask anybody to do, I could not have been more clear in my speech on the floor of the Senate what my vote was and what it was not. And I made it crystal clear that I was voting based on the president's promise that they would build a coalition, that they would not go unless it was absolutely necessary, that he needed this tool to be able to leverage the outcome that we wanted that could avoid the war. And that was very clearly what I said my vote was about. I did not say, I said, my vote is not a vote to simply remove a dictator. My vote is not a vote to go to war as a matter of choice, but as a matter of last resort, because we have no other way to get these weapons if they're there ascertained. And I argued we ought to take some more time to build the coalition. So that's that was what I thought it was. I learned the rough way. I learned you don't get that. I mean, I learned the hard way. You don't have that privilege as a senator. It you know, up or down is up or down, yes or no. And the better vote would have been no because it was a mistake, and I wound up having to apologize for that vote. That you also context. don't get that benefit as a politician because the nuances that you uh, share here are not how it turns out in Precisely. a campaign commercial. or a- And, and I, I obviously had that jammed down my throat a hundred different ways, and I, you know it was uh, uh, you know, very clear. But that's, I thought you could, but I also believed, you know, I mean, I had, I personally called Colin Powell, had conversations with him as Secretary of State. I said, are you sure, you guys, this is really what you're going to do? I think he was, I don't think that they leveled with him, frankly. And we know now that what he presented to the UN was not, in fact, uh, you know, the basis of it. Uh, In addition, uh, I went to the Security Council and I met with all of our uh, allies in the Security Council and listened to them. And they said, well, if you wait two or three months here, uh, then we could be with you if we learn that, in fact, the weapons aren't really there because we've gone to the additional distance. 
And and I weighed that in, mm-hmm. in, in what I was doing as to why I was doing it, because I thought it was legitimate that we find out whether or not the weapons are there. And again, and I'll come back to this, uh, Not I don't think it's particularly material uh, except in that, uh, uh, in, in understanding where we are today and why and the, the sort of sectarianism that we confronted as a result of the toppling of what... Uh, well, there was no thought about what happens afterwards. There right. was, I mean, clearly this, and that was part of the decision. I mean, we talked about that. You guys have got to have a plan. You need to know where we're going and all of that. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. I mean, look, I felt grossly misled by the process. It's one of the reasons why I was so intense in my opposition afterwards, which I always had to be reconciled with the vote. I understand that. But I could not have been more clear about the reasons why I thought this was a colossal mistake. And when Paul Bremer sent the army home and they had no structure left. The Iraqi army. The Iraqi army, yeah. That's why we're where we are. By the way, some of ISIL came out of that. Right. Uh, of the disbanded army. Correct. Yes. The the uh, the question that it leads me to is one about democracy. And, um, you know, I, I'm a, obviously a great believer in it. Uh, I'm the son of an immigrant, and so uh, I, I feel very strongly about it. But um, we didn't have a whole lot of humility about what we could accomplish there in terms of... Um, uh, imposing democracy uh, and democracy has been very, very difficult there because there were these sectarian divisions that um, that really overwhelmed any impulse toward democracy. What do we learn from that about the exportation of democracy and what its limits are and what our role should be? Well, first of all, it reinforces what I said earlier about seeing another place through their lens, not ours. I am told that when the initial decision was made for people to go in in that war, people who were making some of the people involved in the decision-making did not know the difference between Sunni Sunni and Shia. Um, There was a huge level of ignorance about this country's history, its dynamics, and that was reinforced, obviously, by what happened afterwards. But also, um, the uh, we just never uh, understood the degree to which this country needed a longer period of time to go through a certain preparedness to be able to manage some of the things. You can't just plunk democracy down in some places. I think that's one of the things we have learned. I hope we have learned. I've learned it. That there is a truth to this notion that some places, you know, democracy is not just having an election. It's not just voting. You can have a vote, sure, but you can't call that democracy necessarily because what comes afterwards may be such a mishmash of different interests and lack of institutions, lack of capacity to deliver services on a day-to-day basis and so forth. That you just or lack no, of will to d- deliver it, or, in, in this case, from one or you have, sect to another. Right, or you have centuries-old differences that go back to a religious fight over who was the lawful inheritor of the, of the role of... Uh, the caliphate of the, uh, you know, who was the successor of the prophet. That's part of what this struggle is about. And if people didn't understand that and how the Sunni Shia fight had played out, even with Saddam Hussein there, you were really going to have a rough time with this. And that's exactly what happened to the United States. So knowing that lesson, as we are uh, making progress and shrinking this caliphate and uh, presumably ultimately prevailing over it, how do you govern these territories? How are these territories going to be we need, we need to we need to do what they have done for centuries, which is work with the tribes, have a more effective empowerment uh, program that uh, that honor that that sort of diminishes the the choices that are being made exclusively on a sectarian basis and playing up the fullness of rights that can flow to everybody and the protections that can flow to everybody. Uh, even as they work out these long-time differences. It's hard. It's not easy. 
I mean, uh, we're seeing that play out in Iraq right now. The, yes. the Anbar province, Nineveh province, are the mostly Sunni areas. Mosul is Sunni. And what happened in Mosul was that the Shia military that was there didn't want to fight for the Sunni. And so they folded and they left. They didn't feel they had a stake in it. Our job is to work over a longer period of time to make sure everybody understands how they have a stake in it and how it's a shared stake and how they can work these things more effectively together. And there are always outliers, David. I mean, that's one of the things that has struck me is this is not just an easy, oh, well, we'll work it here, we'll talk with that group, we'll talk with that group, because you'll have three other groups, all of which are vying for power, each of which will press a hard line or a soft line, depending on what is appealing to them and helps them in the power struggle. And we don't seem to work those things. We don't, you know, we haven't often understood how to manage those things very effectively. I want to come back to this in a second because I want to talk about Syria and uh, how vexing a problem that has been. Uh, but before I leave 2004, I- I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, two things. One is, um, in the course of that election, you came across a young state senator from Illinois who was running for the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. I think you came in here right after the primary when he was speaking at an event, and ultimately you asked him to give the keynote speech at at your convention. Uh, did you know at that moment that you were that you were lifting him in a way that would send a, set him on a on a, on this trajectory? And what well, led well, you? What well, led I mean, you to well, make that? Well, first led... of all, I mean, first of all, my plan was for him to uh, give my keynote speech, and then I would have loved to have had him renominate me for re-election four years later. So, no, my plan was not <laughs> that he would uh, fair enough launch into being the nominee. But what did you see in him? Best plans of mice and men, right? It's uh, what happens. No, I saw talent. I mean, I came in here uh, as the nominee, uh, I think, or maybe the presumptive nominee still, yeah. but I was the nominee. Yeah. And uh, we were at an event. I think we were in the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. We were at a housing thing, if I recall, and I met him, and I listened to him, and I was struck by him. I mean, I did. Yeah, I, I had a sense of him right then and there. I knew he was going to give a great speech in Boston. I was confident of that, and that's what I wanted. I wanted somebody who presented a new face of our party, a new sense of direction, uh, and who could get the convention and the country excited. And he did that. Uh, and obviously, uh, the rest is history. You uh, And how did you change uh, as a result of that experience of running for president, coming so close to being president? You, you know, know, my I, sense is politicians... And I know, and I mean this in the best sense of the word. You 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 drive toward that a goal, and that's the ultimate goal, and then you fall just short of it. Uh, how do you? Yeah, how but do I you define myself by that? I mean, some people do. I I, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I, you know, it took me eighteen years or more in the Senate before I decided to run for for. I can't remember what it was twenty. Uh, I mean, I came in 84, I ran in 2004, so that's 20 years, right? So it took me about 18 years before I started running. Uh, I came in Al Gore's class. Al Gore was running two years later or four years later. Uh, Tom Harkin ran. Uh, Paul Simon ran. Uh, Jay Rockefeller flirted with it. I mean, Why were you such a slow starter? That's what I wanted because to know. I, you know, Because I had kids and I had a personal life and I was uh, in a moment of transition in that and I just wanted to work through all these things. It wasn't, I didn't feel like, oh my God, I got to run for president no matter what right now. But, but then when, you did run for president. But then it I did run. Out. I did run. And when I lost, I just refused to waste time. I didn't want to look back and say, Oh my God! I was down in my cups, and I, you know, wasted time, and and uh, got all hung up because I lost the presidency. It just didn't. It seemed stupid to me. It seemed like a waste of life effort, and I just determined I'm going to go back to work. I'm not going to let this slow me down. I'm going to go do something, and there are plenty of other things to do. And I didn't feel undefined by it. I also knew that I felt confident. It wasn't as if I felt. Uh, you know, bested by the process. I felt we'd made some mistakes. There were some things we could have done better. We could have won. Uh, I didn't feel like I was somehow, you know, I was angry that I'd lost, but I didn't feel personally defeated, if that makes sense. Then you consider running again. Once you decided that I'm not, the presidential thing is is over, I'm not going to do that anymore. Was there any sense of liberation associated with that? Not really. 
No, I, I just went about. I mean, I, you know, uh, I don't think I ever decided per se. Gee, it's over. Mm-hmm. Other people may have decided that for <laughs> me. But, um, does anybody ever say it's absolutely no? Over, I though? think that not. No, I think until the good Lord, until the good Lord calls. Yes, uh, we're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Secretary John Kerry. Let's talk uh, uh, about some of the issues that uh, you're dealing with now that will continue to be issues uh, perhaps after you leave uh, in, in January. Um, one of them is the TPP, the big trade uh, agreement that is mm. now uh, become a major issue in the campaign. And both major candidates have said that they wouldn't support it, one of them more vociferously uh, than the other. You obviously believe that it's important to move forward on it. Why? TPP is a defi- – first of all, it's a really – it's a good trade agreement. It is a trade agreement that has environment rules and standards built into the agreement. It has labor standards and rules built into the agreement. It is unlike any agreement previously in trade. It is much stronger on the things that people who have opposed trade agreements have always felt need to be part of an agreement. They're there. That's number one. Number two, it represents 40% of global GDP in the fastest growing area of the world, where the United States is able through this agreement to raise the standards of doing business, have a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. So we have an ability here to be able to improve the lives of our people. It destroys, undoes 18,000 different taxes on American goods, so American goods can be sold abroad. And I would just remind people that 95% of the world's customers are in other countries. We can't grow our nation. We can't do better if we are only selling to ourselves. It's just unrealistic in this world. So you need to do this. We, We need to pass this. And the final reason is we've staked ourselves on this. People, countries have followed us. Nations have said, we're going to go with the leadership of the United States, and we believe in this agreement. If all of a sudden the Congress were to reject that leadership of the United States, it will cause untold problems downstream with nations that won't believe us, won't look to us for leadership, because they won't trust it in the future. Do you, why, why do you think that uh, it has gotten to the point where both candidates of both major parties uh, don't embrace that argument, including one candidate who had uh, been supportive of it uh, uh, in the past. I think that there is uh, a lot of misinterpretation and misunderstanding, which campaigns are not able to get over. It's, I understand the difficulties. I mean, uh, a campaign is not the best instrument of policymaking or policy explanation. Uh, what we were talking about earlier, how it just gets encapsulated in one or two words or one suggestion. But isn't it also about the sort of the – you have millions of people in this country whose standards of living have sort of frozen or they've lost ground because jobs that were good middle-class jobs that were – I was uh, about to come, yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's real, isn't it? Have disappeared. It, it may not be real. trade that's the no, no, culprit. No, 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 no. It's very real. But, the, but what I keep saying to people, and I said this when I was in the Senate – you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is not a question of, you know, you're not going to fix it because you can't end trade. If you end trade, we are hurting ourselves more. We will not survive if we do that. So the solution is not to say, okay, we're not going to trade. The solution is to get an agreement that actually helps people with the things that they're worried about, which is if they lose a job, can they get another one? Do they have the skill sets to thrive in a world where technology and productivity are intertwined and where in order to get work, you've got to have different skills than we used to have? We need better uh, – I mean, we obviously need more affordable health care still. We have to challenge how we're going to do that even more than we've done with the, what we, the, which the huge gains of Obamacare. But we still have cost challenges. We still have challenges on the cost of education. Uh, We still have challenges with respect to income levels and making everybody's income go up as people benefit. That's not the trade issue. That's our income tax issue. 
That's the question of applying fairly the rules so that people at the top 1% are not able to escape completely while everybody else carries the load. That's what fuels the anger. And people are taking it out on the trade. There's a perception that these trade deals mostly function for the benefit of large corporations. Correct. Correct. Is that a fair uh, no. surmise? No, because there are... Ask anybody walking out. I mean, stop a person on the street and say, look at the label on the coat you're wearing. Look at the label on the shoes you're wearing. Why'd you buy those shoes? Why'd you buy that coat? Oh, I could afford it. Or I bought it at, you know, Walmart or Target or wherever it is. And and they're going to, you know, why are you able to get that? Because we are trading. Yeah. Because that's where the cost of goods comes that people can afford. It, and yeah. And if all of a sudden those were all made exclusively there'd be higher costs depending on where they're made and how it works i i just think that that what's the strategic cost of not acting on the tpp what's the strategic cost of the country if we don't act at all or you mean if, if, we, if we don't if pass the the agreement uh, we will lose uh, we will we will pay an enormous price going forward because we will have lost our leadership role in a whole region of the world that's the fastest growing region and it is, you know... And who would be the beneficiary? Well, the beneficiaries will be other countries that play by different rules uh, and that don't want to play by the higher standards that we want to play by. So, uh, you know, whether it's China or India or whatever country in the world decides, okay, now we have a free-for-all and we can go race to the bottom. We don't have to worry about the environment. We don't have to worry about labor standards. We don't have to deal with pay equity or other things. Uh, everybody loses, and that's what I fear. That, do you that, do you think the Senate? Uh, do you hope the Senate will take this up before? I'd like to see them take it up, but I think they got to take it up when they can pass it, David. I don't think we should, you know, I don't think we should lose it. We need to pass it, and we need to take the time necessary to find the equation where it is that we can pass it. But I think the sooner the better, because other countries are waiting on us. Well, you also have two candidates who don't say say they don't support. Yeah, it. Yeah, but they also it. say they have different they have different reasons for. Uh, different tweaks that they'd like, or you know, one of them wants. To Can just, it be think, tweaked? Not easily, uh, because it requires reopening the agreement, and other countries will then demand other things and reopen it. So it's better not. But it may be that there are ways to deal with some of those issues inside side agreements or in other ways. So if the votes are there, you'd like to see it passed, perhaps this year. Yes, very much so. Um, the Russians—they've become. Uh, a brooding specter in our campaign debate and perhaps in our campaign. Um, first of all, just speak to the issue of whether it was the Russians who actually hacked the uh, the DNC and John well, our Podesta's intelligence email. community is uh, is uh, with high confidence convinced that the Russians have been engaged in are behind the leaking of the. Stolen emails. So uh, stealing them and then giving them to right. WikiLeaks. That is, yes. That is a dis- and what's the goal? What's distinct the- from the the state election system. Right, right. Ex- you know, uh, uh, fishing expeditions that people have observed. What, what, what's their goal? You, you spend a lot of time with the Russians. Uh, the goal is to be disruptive, to interfere with our system, and to be as annoying as people feel it is. And uh, you must have had you've must have had discussions with your counterpart, Mr. Lavrov, with whom you it seems you spend a sure. great deal of time about this. What is their response to this? Uh, their response is to demand the evidence and to ask for. And, and my response to that is, uh, you know, let's not be foolish here. You know, you know what we're talking about, and uh, we've been very clear. And we move on. And, and what's the reluctance to give them the evidence that I remember when Adlai Stevenson went to the to, uh, yeah, but to uh, the well Security it, it, Council on the Cuban Missile Crisis and it, outed it, the Russians. It would involve uh, revealing uh, our capacities mm-hmm. and, and other things that we're not prepared to reveal. And they know that probably. Sure, of course they do. That's why they asked for it. What 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 is what is Russia's? You know, there was a big debate in 2012. Uh, in fact, you were involved in, in the debate prep with the president. Russia was an issue, and the president was fairly dismissive of Russia, called it a regional power and so on. What is Russia's status in the world right now? Well, Russia is pushing itself into certain areas in a very aggressive way, but I think Russia has 
enormous challenges as a country. Uh, they don't make a lot of products that sell around the world. Uh, they're very dependent on extraction of oil and, and gas. With oil prices, going with oil low, prices down, their budget is hurting. Their sanctions are biting on them. They have serious demographic challenges in their country. Um, I, they're ranked, what, number nine, I think, in the size of economy. Italy, Spain have bigger economies than Russia does. I think that uh, there are a lot of challenges there, and I think that uh, ultimately – uh, it's a mis- I mean, I, you know, from our point of view, uh, it's a mistake for Russia to uh, not be more concerned about the long-term view here of how you build a viable economy in the modern world and how you deal. So I, I you know, I don't sit around quaking about Russia. Ours is the strongest military in the world still and will be. Uh, we have enormous capacity. Our economy is the strongest economy in the world and still, uh, you know, uh, one of the largest. So we're very strong. America should feel confident about who we are and where we are. And I think Russia, uh, frankly, is reacting to that capacity that we have and to the, to the fact that uh, we uh, are a global leader in a very different way. We don't present ourselves by just dropping bombs in, uh, in uh, uh, you know, a civilian area the way we've seen in Aleppo. Uh, we present ourselves fighting for human rights uh, resolution or fighting for people's right to uh, share in the governing of their country through their democratic process and their election. Uh, and I think that... Uh, uh, you know, holding Russia accountable in Ukraine and holding, uh, you know, standing up to them in the ways we have is obviously not not. Uh, on on Syria, you've spent. When I said you spent time with Lavrov. You've been spending a lot of time talking about Syria. Uh, what's how do we unwind what is this horrific situation? And obviously, it's had enormous spillover impact in terms of the refugee uh, populations and the suffering of civilians. What's the way forward here? And the war. I mean, we can't... I think, you know, the endless paying of big checks to take care of refugees is not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is to not have the refugees. And we've got to end the war. It's a, it's a human catastrophe of the greatest proportion since World War II. And so that's why I've been putting so much effort into these discussions, because we have to find a political way uh, to resolve it, not military. I don't think there is a military solution. I think even if the Russians take Aleppo, which they have it within their ultimate power, if that's what they decide they're going to do, but what a mess they will have left. And it won't end the war. It will not end the war, because the, the forces that are arrayed against Assad will be even more embittered. They may even create more jihadis by virtue of taking Aleppo. We've told them that. This is not a solution, nor will it change the fundamental equation of that war, which will remain, how do you deal with Assad's atrocities? How do you deal with his sense of illegitimacy as a leader? How do you deal with this large segment of Syrian society that's been displaced or put into refugee status or tortured and killed or separated from families? How do you bring that back together again? That's the challenge. And taking Aleppo will not resolve that challenge. Are you at all hopeful of finding a political solution? You've, I, tried, I remain, you've been I'm trying desperately. Hopeful. I mean, I, you've, been, you've been very indefatigable. Uh, in I am hopeful, David, but I can't tell you. I mean, yes, I'm hopeful because there is no end to the war unless you resolve some of this, I think, uh, without the massive increased destruction of Syria. Uh, I mean, yes, you can bomb a lot more buildings and kill a lot more people, and maybe they can temporarily uh, pacify it, but they won't bring a united Syria back together again under those circumstances. Two other quick uh, <clears throat> matters. Uh, one uh, goes to Iran. You were deeply involved in the negotiation of the Iran agreement on uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, controversial still in the U.S., uh, the opposition suggesting that the Iranians were given resources, 
resources they were owed, but resources, uh, and uh, and there's no permanent solution to the problem. Uh, what's your answer? No permanent to that? solution to what? In the sense that ultimately they have the ability to develop a weapon. Well, if they break out, but we will know they're breaking out. And then all the options will still be there. All the options that we have today are still there then. I mean, the the key to the agreement, David, is that we built in an extremely penetrating, extensive verification system with great transparency and accountability. And by virtue of that, we have the ability to track what they're doing. Now, they could go try to risk. They, they could have broken out months ago. They could have broken out last year. We would have seen them doing it, and we would have done what we have to do. Same thing in 15 years or 20 years, if that's what they decide to do. But what we're doing is sort of trying to bet on the possibilities of the future, that they want to avoid war, we want to try to avoid war. Therefore, hopefully we can move forward, much as we did with the Soviet Union, uh, in a uneasy process of verification and, you know, uh, Ultimately, a series of agreements by which we have kept from shooting at each other with nuclear weapons. And that's the hope that we can continue with Iran um, to prevent them from even having a weapon. Last issue. Um, you, you were very, very active in trying to broker a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the, the long, elusive two-state solution. Uh, in the remaining time in the administration of the administration, what what do you anticipate doing uh, to try and influence uh, that issue? And can it be? Can do you see uh, possibilities here? Well, I always see it. Yes, I mean, do I envision the possibility of a peace? The answer is yes. Do I believe that uh, you could have a two-state solution where Israel could be secure and capable of protecting itself by itself and? And feeling that it has security built into the system, yes. Do I believe the Palestinians could have a state in which they have sovereignty, but they're demilitarized, non-militarized, and they're cooperating with the region, with Jordan, with Egypt, with Israel, in providing security? I think that's possible. But you have to have leaders who are willing to go there, who want to do that. The fear that President Obama and I share is that Israel... Uh, in its current direction, is actually diminishing the capacity for a two-state solution. And we think that's happening where a one-state solution is not a possibility. It can't happen. At least you can't have a democratic Jewish and Jewish state. democratic state. No, you can't and have one state. So you need to preserve the two states. But right now it's uh, moving in a dangerous direction because of the number of settlements and the general lack of any kind of legitimate process to move in that direction. Do you have any? Do you anticipate uh, laying out a a blueprint for such a solution before you leave office? Well, no decision has been made yet with respect to what. I mean, I think we want to encourage the preservation of a two-state solution, and our first choice is to try to do that with. Uh, the government with with the prime minister and to work together in order to make sure that that is uh, that there's a track that's going to guarantee that that's being preserved. Um, I think uh, you know President Obama is very very concerned that increasingly pressure is being put on the capacity to hold on to that two state uh, effort, and part of it is because there's been a very high level of continued settlement construction. Uh, some of it well deep into the West Bank in places that uh, uh, will not be a part of Israel. And do you think that's intended to thwart a two-state solution? Well, I, you know, it, it certainly puts it at risk. I'm not going to get into intent. Uh, but it, the fact of it is a problem. And it runs contrary to American policy under Republican and Democratic presidents alike. But it's possible that you guys may lay out a blueprint before you leave. Well, it, I mean, lots of things are possible. I don't know what— Lots of things aren't, though, and so— Yeah, well, it's certainly one of the things that's been kicked around publicly by—I mean, even Prime Minister Netanyahu has mentioned it. No decision has been made to do that. There's been no discussion of it at this point in any official way. You've been in public life for uh, most, of your, most of your adult life, and you obviously relish it, uh, and you're 
active to this moment and, and, and you're not winding down. Uh, what plans do you have after you leave? Let's have, I, I, what kind of future do you foresee for, for John Kerry? Well, whatever it'll be, it'll be exciting. I don't have any idea. What, <laughs> I, I honestly, uh, I'm thinking that through right now. I don't know what I'm going to do specifically. I'd like to do some private sector stuff in general. I find it fascinating what is happening in the workplace and in the global community right now with uh, the possibilities of energy and technology and so forth. Um, I want to continue to do some kind of conflict resolution. I think I have it in my blood a little bit. I want to try to continue to work to improve things, make things better. I will certainly continue to press climate change and the oceans issues that are partly linked to climate and other issues, overfishing and so forth. And, um, you know, I'd like to work and be a solid voice for uh, peace and uh, stability in regions that are afflicted today, and I hope I can continue to do that somehow. Well, one thing you'll add to your list is to spend time with students, as you did today at the University of Chicago, because yeah, I you love left them that. inspired and energized, and we're really grateful for Thank that. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. It's wonderful to be with you here. Thank it's you. Great place. Great to Thank have you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.